Well, congregation, before we turn to the scripture reading for this afternoon, let's again bow our heads in a word of prayer, just asking the Lord's blessings upon the reading and the proclamation of your word, his word. Father, by your grace, we pray that you would bless now the reading of your word. We now come to that most inspired moment of the worship service when your word is opened. We pray for your blessings upon your word, the richest anointing of your Holy Spirit, that your word would be read, that it would speak to the hearts of your people. And following that, an exposition on your word, we pray that your Holy Spirit would rest upon him who proclaims your word, that he would do so with power, with boldness, with clarity, and that he would be faithful to the passage. We pray the same Holy Spirit would work in each and every one of our hearts. There may very well be, almost certainly there is, those who have come here this afternoon weighed down in guilt and shame and miserable and have not found the answer to what the heart is searching for. And I know that I address people Maybe have gone to church their whole lives, a congregation that is well versed in Christian, in your word, in Christian teaching and doctrine. And yet, Father, we know the blindness and the hardness of our hearts that we can so quickly hide behind religious impulse, hide behind facades, hide a broken, wounded, guilt laden heart and truly not yet be children your children those who've put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ may we not confuse faith in Jesus with religious performance and so speak to all of us as we open your word now in Jesus name amen Our scripture reading this afternoon is Matthew chapter 27 I'm going to read the first 10 verses of Matthew chapter 27. Congregation, as you look that up, finishing off the gospel of Matthew in our congregation, the congregation that I serve, we're in the final few chapters, and we have noticed that Matthew's style as a gospel writer, Matthew describes the betrayal, arrest, and death of Jesus, and he is continually drawing these contrasts, comparing and contrasting the different characters in the story. This story of Jesus' trial, his betrayal, his trial, his death, it's actually told in contrast. If you're looking, you go back to Matthew chapter 26, for example, you just started the beginning of Matthew chapter 26, we have contrasted here Judas, who is selling out Jesus, Judas, who is uh, betraying Jesus, and that is contrasted with Mary, who anoints Jesus with that precious, that expensive, that exquisite perfume. Judas, Mary, contrasted. Middle of Matthew chapter 26, we have Jesus' loyalty to his cause. Jesus will lay down his life for his people. Jesus is giving of himself. It's an act of selflessness compared, contrasted, with the disciples who once threatened, abandoned Jesus. He loyal to them. They disloyal to him. 
The contrast in the middle of chapter 26, and we can keep going this way. Our passage here this afternoon follows on the heels, if you look just at the end of Matthew 26, follows on the heels of Peter's denial of Jesus. As Peter had denied Jesus for the third time, he heard a rooster crow. The Gospel of Luke tells us that Jesus looked at Peter. He looked at Peter as if to say, you might be denying ever having known me, but I know you. Peter went out and wept bitterly. And that brings us to our passage now as we focus here on Judas, on Judas and his grief. And we understand that both of these disciples, Peter and Judas, both of them are broken in spirit because of what they've done. And I want you to appreciate their sins aren't all that different. Judas sold out Peter, or Judas sold out Jesus for money, while Peter ever denied knowing him. Both are a form of betrayal, you understand. Both are a lack of loyalty. So here's the question we ask this afternoon. How is it that Peter goes on to be a forgiven man who rises to become an apostle while Judas' life ends in an act of suicide? Both regret what they have done. So why does Peter's grief lead to life while Judas's grief leads to his death? That's the question we want to ask and answer this afternoon. Hear the word of our God. When morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. And when they bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? You see to it. Then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. But the chief priests took the silver pieces and said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury because they are the price of blood. And they consulted together and bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. Therefore that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the value of him whom they, who, who was priced, whom they of the children of Israel priced, and they gave them to the potter's field, for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Congregation, the Apostle Paul's relationship to the congregation of Corinth was, as we might say, complicated. When Paul first came to the city of Corinth, Paul, you read this in the book of Acts, Paul spent a year and a half in the city of Corinth. Now, in all of Paul's missionary journeys, again, as you read them in the book of Acts, nowhere did Paul spend as much time as in the city of Corinth. He showed a great devotion to this congregation. And yet, as we see this, we see particularly in 2 Corinthians, this was a congregation that very much made Paul's work hard. 2 Corinthians, Paul mentions a letter that he had written to the Corinthian congregation 
It's a letter that we no longer have. I think God in his providence did not want that letter preserved, did not want the church to have it. But it would have been a very hard-hitting letter because of the behavior, because of the actions, because of the attitudes of the congregation in Corinth. Paul was rebuking them in that letter. And Paul references that letter in 2 Corinthians 7, 8. Our 2 Corinthians 7, 8, Paul says this, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. So Paul is communicating here to the congregation of Corinth. He wasn't excited to have to send this letter to them. He didn't want to have to rebuke the Corinthian congregation. And he knew as they received this letter that it had brought great grief to them. But Paul, Paul was pleased that in their grief it led to repentance. And then Paul says these words, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. A godly grief that leads to repentance and leads to salvation versus a worldly grief that leads to death. And it's these words I want to focus on this afternoon as we take up this passage here. The difference between a godly grief and a worldly grief. And congregation, this is the most important distinction that we need to draw as we examine our own sorrow, as we examine our own repentance for sins that we have committed. Because Peter, Peter was sorry for his sin and he wept bitterly. But Peter found forgiveness and he lived in the joy of that forgiveness and he was used mightily for the, in the church of Jesus Christ, the Jesus whom he denied knowing. He was used mightily in the church of Jesus Christ as an apostle. No doubt Judas also wept. No doubt Judas also was torn up for what he'd done. Consumed in grief like so many people today can be when their sins catch up to them. But his grief led to self-destruction. And congregation, what of you? Listen, our sins always catch up to us. Don't be a fool. Don't think that they won't. Right? Whether it's, whether it's weeks, whether it's months, whether it's years, your sins catch up to you. Always do. And so we will, all of us, find at times that we are weighed down by grief because of things that we have said, because of things that we have done. And where's that going to lead you? Where's it going to lead for you? It's going to lead to life? Or is it going to lead to death? Let's look at verse 3 here in our passage as we look more closely at, at, at what we see in Judas. And Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Now, we have this change of mind in Judas here in verse 3. Our NKGV uses the word remorseful. Sometimes that Greek word can be used, uh, can be translated repentance. We might better use the word regret or remorseful is a great word. Peter, uh, Judas, is moved. He he regrets what he has done. He's sorry for what he has done. And we've got to remember that Judas was a man of the covenant. 
He was a covenant man. He too would have known his Old Testament. He would have known his Old Testament better than any of us do. And you see, it was God's law. It was a knowledge of God's law that was bringing this conviction, that was bringing this this remorse to Judas. Judas uses two key words as he speaks to the elders, the chief priests and elders. He's using two key words that tell us that it is God's law that has brought condemnation in the life of Judas. Two words. He says, I have betrayed innocent blood. Innocent blood. Deuteronomy 27, 25 said, Cursed be anyone who takes a bribe to shed innocent blood. And all the people shall say, Amen. The law had served its function in the life of Judas. Judas is referencing this law. The law has brought condemnation. It reflected back to Judas, like that mirror, Judas' sin. And we weigh that, and we say, well, this is a good thing, isn't it? I mean, better that the law bring condemnation than that Judas go merrily on to hell. And certainly true. In the congregation, we live in a culture, even a church culture, that instead of calling sin, sin tries to redefine sin or deny sin or sadly even celebrates activities that the Bible clearly states and lays out as sinful. But here is Judas, and he goes to them and he says, I have sinned. He acknowledges it. He owns it. He's closer to the truth than most of our culture today. Those Christians who justify their sin instead of confessing it. I have sinned. So, we have sorrow, we have regret and remorse in Judas, we have a conviction of sin based on a knowledge of the law, we have an admission of sin. You think about it, I mean, this is all pretty huge in Judas. Where does Judas go wrong? He's not trying to hide his sin, he doesn't try to redefine it, he owns it. Where is he going wrong? Where Judas goes wrong in his attempts to fix the problem of, uh, this problem of sin is he's trying to fix it himself. We call this self-atonement. What is self-atonement? Self-atonement is trying to make a covering for our sins by ourselves. It's trying to fix our problem, the problem of our sin, to fix the problem of sin in our own ways. Husband blows up at wife. Instead of hat in hand, going to his wife and saying, I was a jerk, please forgive me, I sinned against you. No, suddenly a dozen roses appears on the kitchen table later that day. That's self-atonement. Self-atonement. For Judas, way down in, in guilt and shame, where is he looking for relief? Well, he now goes to the chief priests and the elders, presumably the same scoundrels who gave him the 30 pieces of silver in the first place. And he's trying to return now this bribe money. He's trying to return this money back to them. But they won't accept it. What's he trying to do? Again, at some level, he's trying to fix this sin problem himself. He's trying to undo the wrong. Only he can't fix it. He can't undo the wrong. A Christian school teacher that our kids had some time ago, the the teacher used to try to impress upon the children the importance of guarding our tongue. 
The importance of careful what we say. And he would take a tube of toothpaste and he'd squeeze out a big gob of, of toothpaste. And he'd ask the kids, he'd say to the kids, now how do you think, do you think I can get the toothpaste back in the tube? The kids would look at that and they realize very quickly, you're going to try to get the toothpaste back in the tube, it's only going to make a bigger mess. And he would impress upon them, listen, you say the words that you say, you can't get the toothpaste back in the tube. Those words are out there now. Those words are out there now. You can go bigger on this. We can go broader on this. Once sin is out, trying to fix it in our own strength, it's like trying to get the toothpaste back in the tube. It's only going to make a bigger mess. It's not going to work. Now, let's look at the response of the chief priests and the the scribes here for just a minute. I'll put this in our terms. They said to him, what what is that to us? You see to it. In other words, that's your problem, not ours. You, you figure it out. And these are the spiritual leaders. These are the, somebody has come to them with a tender conscience, a conscience that's condemning him. They are the spiritual doctors who are to treat the tender conscience. Yeah, but Judas is incriminating them as well, and they'll have nothing of it. It's your problem. You, you figure it out. So what does Judas do next? That he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed And he went, and he hanged himself. What's he trying to do here? More attempts at self-atonement, but also some blame shifting here. You see, this blood money that he had, that he has, it's making him feel guilty. He he, he wants this blood money away from him, so he grabs, uh, presumably had the silver coins in a bag, and he grabs that bag, and he tosses it in the temple. I won't get into why commentators suggest this, but he may have hurtled the silver coins in the direction of the treasury in the temple, the treasury being where people would put money in the collection box. Again, an attempt to somehow answer this guilty conscience. He wants to give back the money. Maybe there's even an intention here of of putting it in the collection box, the collection plate, we might say. I mean, how many people in the church, I've run into this congregation where they're feeling guilty about something and say, well, in their minds, generally say this out loud, though the person I talked to said it out loud, uh, you know, I'll just put a little extra in the collection bag. Yeah, does that work? I also mentioned the blame shifting here. He brings this money, he throws it into the temple. This is his way of saying, you bear this guilt too, you priests and elders. This isn't all on me. And then in self-loathing, in self-hatred, Judas went out and he hanged himself. I don't want to dwell on this too long, but I do need to address this. Acts chapter 1, Luke also tells us much the same story, gives us a few different details. Luke suggests that Judas jumped from some height and falling down, he was split open in the middle and his intestines burst out. It's not a contradictory story from Luke or from Matthew here. Probably likely that Judas tied a rope around his neck, jumped off some height, some cliff perhaps. Whether the jerking of his body or whether he hit a sharp stone on the way down, giving him a gash in his abdomen, whatever the case, he eviscerated himself. It's an awful, it's an unspeakable death. There is a grief that leads to death. Again, we look at some of, of Judas' initial responses and we say, well, that's actually quite positive, right? 
We have a condemnation because of the knowledge of the law, leading to an acknowledgement of sin. Judas owns his sin. There's an accompanied grief and remorse. Even a, and we could talk about this, but even a sloppy sort of a way of of trying to, to restore restitution here by paying back the money, the slave price, the 30 pieces of silver. These are all, we would say, positive responses, aren't they? Not necessarily. And it's not just that sorrow of sin is not enough or that confession of sin is not enough or that restitution for sin is not enough, true and accurate as these statements are. And we can talk about how regret is different from repentance. That too is true. Another sermon, another day. But the biggest difference between grief that leads to death and grief that leads to life is the orientation is the focus of our hearts in our grief. Judas, in his self-loathing, leads to attempts at self-atonement, which leads to self-pity, which leads to self-death, an act of suicide. What's the focus? What's the orientation of all of Judas's thinking and all that he's doing? Self. Everything orients around self. For Judas. Sifted by this passage, as we are being, and we weigh our actions and we weigh the words of the past that we have said, things that we have done, things for which we are sorry, and, and we have our regrets. You, you think back over the years, and I got some key things that come to mind. If I could just get back those moments, how we would change things, right? but we can't. So maybe we have this unspeakable weight of guilt. And so we've been trying to fix things ourselves. And congregation, to make this real for us as, as a congregation, as a church as well. This idea of, of fixing things ourselves. This is where man-focused religion brings people to despair. This is where religiosity, this is where legalism will ultimately take you. Because at the heart of religiosity, at the heart of religiosity, at the heart of legalism, is an attempt to please God by our actions, by our religious performance. Legalism is a system of self-atonement, a desire to be able to check all those boxes so that at the end of the day, we can feel good about ourselves, that God must be pleased to have us on his team. Because of what we've done. But congregation, legalism and acts of religion never truly silence the guilt within. Never truly give peace. You can give all your life savings to the collection bag later on in this worship service and still feel like the same dirt bag you came here feeling like. Right? Is that why maybe there's so many miserable people lacking assurance, don't know peace, don't know joy in their heart, sitting in Reformed and Presbyterian churches in this very hour? Because deep down, they still feel the guilt and the shame. Deep down, do you still feel the guilt and the shame? What's wrong? What's, what's missing in all of this? 
I said it's a focus. It's, it's, it's an orientation. It's a direction that we look, congregation. Judas is looking at himself. He's looking at the consequences of his actions. He's trying to fix things himself. It's where we're looking when the sins catch up to us. Are we more consumed with the pain and the consequences of what our sins have brought? Where are we looking? What's the difference between a sorrow that leads to life and a sorrow that leads to death? It's where we're looking. Are we sorrowing because we have offended our Father in heaven? Remember David's words in Psalm 51, against you, you only have I sinned and and done this evil in your sight. Now, David had sinned against a lot of people. He'd sinned against his people. He'd sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against Uriah. He trounced upon God's commandments. He sinned against a lot of people. But chiefly, as far as orientation goes, chiefly David felt his sin, a broken relationship between him and his Father in heaven. In our sorrow for our sin, where do we look? Where do we feel it the most? Are we sorrowing because we've offended a Father in heaven? Are we looking to Jesus for forgiveness? Is that where we're looking? Again, borrowing from Luke's account, and Peter had just finished denying ever knowing Jesus at all. And two things happen in quick succession. A pesky rooster crowed, and Jesus looked at Peter. As if to say, you might say you don't know me, but I know you. Now, Peter went out and he wept bitterly. But congregation, Jesus was the focus of his weeping and grieving. And... Jesus was his hope in the midst of the grieving and weeping. No doubt what kept running through Peter's mind as he, as he wept, and over those next three days, no doubt what, what one thing that ran through his mind, one thing that just kind of was that loop that keeps you up at night, that loop in Peter's mind, was the eyes of his Savior looking at him, and he knew that Jesus knew what he had done. And no doubt, on the one hand, that filled Peter with this renewed sorrow for what he had done, for denying his Savior. But no doubt also, it filled him with hope. Because the last thing he saw from his Savior were the eyes of one who looked at him as if to say, I know you. I know you. Jesus does know me, would have also locked into Peter's heart. He knows me. Congregation, there's come a point in our grief and in our sorrow for our sin where we get to that point of saying, I can't fix this, try as I might. I can't get the toothpaste back in the tube, but Jesus has fixed it on the cross. Jesus is my atonement. I can't make my sins right, but he can. He has. And you see, congregation, when we get here, then our grief turns to life. 
We confess our sins before God, our Father, whom we have sinned against. We confess our sins against others whom we have sinned against. And in time, because repentance is a process, it is a one-time act, but it is a process as well. In time and in humble trust in Jesus Christ, you find that your grief turns to life, to assurance, to joy. Again, stop looking at yourself and how... How ugly and dirty you are, because the truth is you don't know the half of it. You confess your sins, you look to the one who is faithful and just, who forgives us of our sins, and who cleanses us from all of our unrighteousness. The Father has sent his Son into this world to fix the sin problem. So don't, in your pride, cast his Son aside as you try to do things yourself. That's Judas in this text. And where did it lead him? Now, look how this passage ends. So, verse 5, Judas' life is, is done and over with. The chief priests and the elders, they got a problem on their hands because he's thrown the silver in the temple, right? And now, all of a sudden, they have tender consciences again, right? Let's forget about the fact that we sold out a man's life for 30 pieces of silver. We won't dwell on that, uh, but it's not lawful now, they say, verse 6. It's not lawful to put them, this 30 pieces of silver, into the treasury because it's the price of blood. They're following the spirit of a different law, Deuteronomy 23, 18, which says, You must not bring the earnings of a female prostitute or a male prostitute into the house of the Lord your God to pay any vow, because the Lord your God detests them both. The spirit of that law is if money is tainted, (laughs) it has been used for an unclean act, well, we can't put that in the, the treasury. Remember what Jesus said about these religious leaders, right? They they strain out a gnat while they swallow a camel. Yeah, we see some of that here. Majoring on minors. What do they do with the money? They buy a field in order to bury Gentiles who might pass away within the city of Jerusalem. And buying a field, uh, this, uh, a prophecy is fulfilled here. Matthew's uh, careful to note that. The prophecy is how Matthew kind of lays out this prophecy. It's actually very interesting because there's actually two prophecies here. I'll let your study Bibles are helpful here, but the study Bibles do the bulk of the work. But we got two prophecies. One's from Zechariah 11, verse 12 and 13. And the other is from Jeremiah the prophet who was commanded by the Lord to buy a potter's field. And Matthew brings these two prophecies together, attributes it to the, more, the, the major prophet Jeremiah, the more prominent prophet says scripture is fulfilled, which it is. Now, the field purchased by this money, this field ends up receiving the name, the moniker, Field of Blood. Why Field of Blood? Is that because it was purchased with blood money? Probably yes. Is it also because anybody who was buried in that field, or anybody who walks by that field, anybody knows at all the history of that field knows how that field was purchased and knows the backstory of that. Knows that Judas, in an act of despair, took his life and the money he left behind in the temple was, was used to purchase this field. You know, as, as people talked about this field, the name Judas invariably would have come up. You know, in the introduction to our passage, we talked about how Matthew, in his gospel accounts, 
Matthew continues to draw these contrasts. So the bulk of our sermon this afternoon, we have contrasted Judas's sorrow that leads to death versus Peter's sorrow that leads to life in the orientation of their hearts. But maybe we're meant to go in a different direction, to draw a different contrast. You know, there's two verses in our passage here I haven't touched yet. And that's verses 1 and 2. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. Bound and condemned to death. Plans are underfoot now that will lead to Jesus' condemnation to death. So maybe we're also meant to draw a different contrast here. Jesus' imminent death versus, at this point, Judas' imminent death. The contrast of two men and their death. I need to point out, both men, Jesus, Jesus and Judas, die under a curse. Right? Judas, cursed be anyone who accepts a bribe to shed innocent blood. It's the verse we talked about earlier, Deuteronomy 27, 25. Jesus, cursed be anyone who hangs on a tree, Deuteronomy 21, 23. Both men died under the curse of God. But one man's death, all it accomplished in a roundabout way, is the purchase of a field for other bodies of people who died in the city. A death that only reflected or memorialized more death. A death that only memorialized more of God's curse of death upon a fallen humanity. But one man's death gives life because he bore God's wrath and curse on the cross for us. Congregation, the grief that leads to life is to look to the one who has already borne the wrath of God on the cross for your sins. You fix your eyes, you fix the focus of your hearts on him. Because the grief that leads to death is to try to shoulder God's curse yourself, something you cannot do. Your congregation, at the end of all of this, maybe we can carve it down to a very simple question. The whole passage down to a very simple question. Who will bear the curse? Who will bear the curse for you? Jesus? Are you going to try to do it yourself? You keep looking to yourself. You keep trying to atone for your sins by yourself. Misery? Lack of assurance? Brokenness, guilt, shame, despair. Look at Judas. But God has sent another, one who has borne the curse of God, do us for our sins. We look to him, congregation. We look to him alone. Even in our grief, even in the sorrow for our sins, And in him we find life. Who will bear the curse? Let's have a moment of quiet reflection.
Father Almighty, gracious, merciful, and loving Father, who will bear the curse? We came here this afternoon, and we were confident we would hear the gospel message. But maybe all these long years, we have tried to bear the curse ourselves. We have tried to atone for our sins and our iniquities through religious impulse, through the performance of actions, through the putting on of a facade. And yet our hearts are far from you, weighed down in shame and guilt, leaving us miserable. You don't want us miserable. As your children, you want us filled with joy, with rejoicing, with assurance. And Father, I pray by your grace then that we, try, that we stop trying to shoulder the burden, to shoulder the curse ourselves. We were never meant to. We weigh that and we start to remember Jesus' words, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus has entered into our lives, and he's offering to bear the burden we were never meant to anyways. And so, Father, I pray by your grace that we would cast it all on Jesus, that we would look to him, that we would recognize that he is our righteousness, he is our salvation before you. And when we grieve because of our sins, and we do grieve, may Jesus be our focus, realizing and recognizing that in him we find our forgiveness, and through him, we can know the delight of a father upon us.